Thanks as always for tuning in, friends. Welcome to another episode of Coming Up Next, the podcast. And a special thank you to last week's guest, uh, to Michaela Bannis for coming back into the chat cave. Uh, I guess it's her third time, um, if you include the time that she interviewed yours truly, which was episode 50. Uh, The other episode was episode 2. And last week was episode 143, which can only mean that this week is episode 144, if my maths is correct, which I certainly hope it is. Uh, If you're not already subscribed to the show, meaning you haven't heard last week's or any of the other episodes that I mentioned, you can subscribe to the show at comingupnext.com.au. There are links to Stitcher, to iTunes, and to Podbean, so there's no reason why you can't have this show downloading into your pocket each and every week. Now, this last week just gone, I was lucky enough to be at South by Southwest in Austin. Uh, if you don't know what South by Southwest is, it's an incredible music, film, and arts uh, and technology festival now, which uh, which takes place over a couple of weeks in Austin, Texas. Uh, I've never been to Texas before, so it was pretty awesome to see a new part of the world. I went with a guy named John Belitsky. John has a background in property development and real estate. And he has this uh, this project going on in New York City uh, called Demanda, which is D-M-N-D-R. Um, and it's this quite extraordinary project that uh, that he's building up and has been building up over the last few years to try and create a paradigm shift in the way that music is, and, and the arts in general, I suppose, uh, is consumed, uh, you know, kind of taking uh, the model away from supply and demand and giving the power back to the artists, the creators, and the people who are consuming it as opposed to the people who are facilitating the consumption. Anyway, if that all, if that, if that all sounds very cerebral, uh, John's going to explain it much better than me in this week's episode. Uh, I was lucky enough to sit down with John just before we went to Austin, Texas, and uh, and get his story. So, here is his story, episode 144 of Coming Up Next, the podcast with John Belitsky. Uh, at the moment, I'm in Chelsea. I was in Dalston for a while, um, and now I've been back and forth to Australia uh, a lot in the last um, sort of nine months, trying to finish up on a documentary project over there. Another one? It's kind of an ex- so the one what Nick sent you is like the I guess it was like a TV special, so it was like a fundraising sort of mm-hmm. piece that we made. But I've been fil- I, I continued filming the story after that as well, as well as having filmed for about two years before the unicycle trip around. Mm-hmm. So there's like a much bigger kind of story that could, it's kind of the real story, I guess. And did it break them? Uh, it's, uh, it's certainly taking its toll. It's, uh, it's a peculiar thing. It's a really peculiar thing. Success or what people think success is, is a very, very, very strange thing. Like it has a 
profound effect on people. Like, I don't think people are, are ever really ready for the kind of success they think they want. I don't think they know what it is that they're working for. I think they just have like some obscure notion that they want some kind of a, a notoriety, they want something, and they just work towards it. And it's, uh, it's really fucked up when it happens. I don't think most people are prepared for it. Um, I had to touch with it and it was terrifying, terrifying. I took this this cab ride. Did Nick tell you about this? He he mentioned uh, something about a cab ride from New York to LA. So I took this cab, right? And it was it was most of it was like uh, a fuck you to my buddy who decided to move to Berlin. So our mutual best friend had his birthday, and he was like staying at my house. I'm just like we're just gonna fucking do this thing. It's like absurd. I'm getting this cab, and like he's gonna mix. He's gonna miss out. You know, it's like punishing him. It's like, you want to move to Berlin? You move to Berlin. We're going to do this thing. It's happening over here. And um, when the news media just like got a hold of this thing, it was, it just had, it became its own life. It had its own thing. So like on these news forums, people were calling me like this racist exploiter of, of Bangladeshi cab drivers. Like it was obscene. Like people were saying they want to kill me. Like, for like nothing. I'm yeah. just like, what? the fuck is wrong with people like why like what what have i done to you yeah um and i you know you, you can't be prepared for that what was the premise of their accusations like why were they nothing yeah the internet has no premise yeah. <laughs> the internet has no premise yeah the internet is is just a blind man just like rambling through space like it's unbelievable it is the most random thing mm. uh, but at the same time it's 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 predictably violent and irrational and contrary to everything we experience like out here in real space. Like no other circumstance do people engage with each other like that. Like that only happens on the internet. Mm. But when you see it, you're still just like, there's a human somewhere in the world saying this shit about me for like what reason? Like why? I don't get it. Mm. So I would imagine your your subjects in, in this doc have, you know, a similar experience. Like once you have that kind of notoriety, the haters come out. So tell me about this cab ride from New York to L.A. How long did that take? That was uh, two weeks. Two. Right. So you just said to a cab driver, where were you in New York? Queens. Queens. Okay. <laughs> where, where else would I be? Yeah. I was, uh, I was at LaGuardia. What were you I, doing at the time, like work-wise? Same thing I'm always doing, which is everything, you know, I've always had like one foot in the arts, one foot in finance or in real estate or businesses, consulting, you know, funding the stuff I love with stuff that I actually also love. I mean, it's strange to say it, but I really do love making deals. Like I, I love making transactions They're fun as hell, um, which is peculiar because you have no cred in either world if you have an affinity for either of those things <laughs> you know like no artist wants to hear that you like making deals and no deal maker wants to hear that you love making art it's just it's a weird left brain right brain thing yeah but I, I really love both of them so i was doing that and um i went to this cab stand at LaGuardia, and i was like you know take me take me to la and the guy was like brooklyn or queens and i was like california dude and he was like, oh, my God. And so then we negotiated a price. We went back to his house. We grabbed his heart pills, which scared me a little bit. And then we just, like, took off. We went across the whole country. And, uh, like, the beautiful thing that happened was, like, as, as soon as it started, I realized I was like, fuck this, man. I'm like, I'm going to enjoy this. Like, I'm, 
we're not going to just like cruise out to LA and like turn around. I'm like, we're going to stop at like every person's house at left New York, pop in, grab a beer and catch up with all my friends. We're going to go to Vegas. We're going to go to the Grand Canyon. I'd never been to the Grand Canyon. And like me, my buddy and this cab driver had this like crazy, weird family road trip in a yellow cab. And, um, I mean, just like enjoy it. It was, it was like a surreal thing. Because like you know, the thing that I'm obsessed with is like rapidly changing people's sense of reality, like huge shifts in people's reality in a very short period. You know, it's just like shaking people out of this like idea that they have that they know what the fuck is happening in the world really, really, really fast. Uh, and so when you're in Iowa in cornfields and you're like taking your kid to, you know, football practice and you see a yellow cab rolling down your street people are like what the holy fuck is that like that that doesn't make any sense you know so like people be beeping chasing us and they pull us over you know we go to a gas station people be like i've never been in a cab in my life you know and so like we just drive them around and they'd be like making phone calls like i'm in a yellow cab from new york city (laughs) it's fucking great you know it was just it was just fun to like give people this idea that they're like ordinary mundane life had this like crazy juxtaposition which was literally anything they wanted to do just other than what they're doing <laughs> you yeah. know it's like at any given moment they just do the exact opposite the first question that comes to mind is how does one afford to do something like that i mean i don't want to say it only costs five grand but considering it only cost me five grand yeah right i mean like that two-week kind of cruise effectively land cruise yeah, I mean, well, I mean, that was like the fair. The fair was five grand. That's yeah, what right. I negotiated. But then I was like, "Am I really going to make this guy pay for gas? You know, am I really going to make this guy pay for meals? Yeah, you know, yeah, so yeah. Like it, it just it kind of it did add up. But that said, you know, I you go you go to the Dominican Republic, you go to Jamaica, you go to some place that's been yelped, you go to some place that has like a thousand reviews. There's a million pictures of it on Instagram. Yeah, that's not yours, man. You know, it's like that's mine. I, mm. I I still own that. Nobody else owns that. No one will ever have that. You know, it's, and that's the thing. It's like you know, we live in this world. It's like you're not find you're not using GPS to find where you're going. Like the GPS is like finding you. Like it's like you can't escape it. You can't get lost. You know, and so this was an opportunity to get lost. And sometimes that costs five thousand dollars in modernity. You know, because we're we're shackled, man. Yeah, absolutely. But it was it was it was a beautiful. Th- I mean, like the feeling is absolute freedom. You're in the Grand Canyon in a yellow cab, okay? <laughs> you know, like we're driving through the desert, and I'm like, I gotta take a leak, and he's like, right side or left? I'm like, dude, <laughs> <laughs> like it's just such a different feeling. Yeah, the whole thing is just you can't you can't recreate that. So, what was the dynamic, I guess, in the cab, like? You know, with this, I guess after. A few days, you you develop a rapport with the driver, and you were with a friend as well. So, yeah, I mean, we did. I mean, the the big thing is like me and my buddy Dan Dan Webin, um, who's living in Omaha now. He's a professor, Professor Dan. <laughs> uh, we got real cool with the cabbie, but the thing was that he had never really like driven over like thirty miles an hour. He hadn't been outside of the city, so like he was like super nervous, and like he wouldn't let us drive the cab. He had to drive the whole way. I mean, it, it was a, it was a, it was an interesting dynamic. I mean, I'm still friends with him now. He lives two miles from here. Yeah, right. 
you know, so I've been trying to get him to come over and, and bring me a Bangladeshi band to, to play actually with, with our house band. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to see what that, that mashup sounds like. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was a weird thing. But also, you know, like, you're, like you were saying about your Australian documentary folks, like he became a celebrity, like, like literally a celebrity. Like when we got back, we had a huge party that, you know, Queensborough president was there and his, the whole Bangladeshi community came out. We were given awards. I mean, like we were greeted at the airport with signs. I mean, like hmm. we got flown to, to London. We got flown to L.A. again to, to be on the Lopez show. We were on like, you know, every single TV show. So he came home and he was like this celebrity uh, and he was aware of it. You know, like when we were traveling, you know, out west, he became aware that people were following him. You know, and, and this was like something that was somehow important to people to follow. Yeah. Uh, and that that was a really weird thing. So you were using social media to, I guess, keep the story flowing from a kind of, uh, I guess, a, an external narrative point of view? I mean, look, we were really shit storytellers. Right. You know, I mean, we were kind of like nascent storytellers. Like I'd, it was, I'd never really used Twitter before. Like the whole new media landscape was very, very, very new to me. And so we were terrible at it. We we're just like, we're here, you know, and like we we're just kind of having fun. And still to this day, it's like I don't really put my personal life out there, you know, for mass media consumption. It's not something I do. So we didn't do that. So the, 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 the narrative wasn't so compelling. Right. Uh, the real fun was doing the damn thing. Yeah. Like it was just a weird, fun, amazing thing. I love the Coen brothers, you know, obviously, if you like, you're a film guy. We stayed at the, the motel from No Country for Old Men. Ah, that's cool. You know, so like we found the motel and went there. Uh, it's outside of, I think it's Las Vegas, New Mexico, I think. Uh, not Las Vegas, Las Vegas, like the other Las Vegas. It's like this. I didn't even know there was another one. It's miserable. Like it's like this <laughs> meth riddled, horrible. Yeah. Heavy Abadam's just killed everyone there. Oh, Javier Bardem is like, he was too scary, friendo. Like, he was too scary. Like, he, he scared everyone out, I guess. But we, we stayed at that place. The guy who ran it was this crazy, meth-addicted Irani guy who was screaming 9-11 at me when we checked it. I mean, like, everything was, like, surreal and bizarre every step of the way. It's like, you mm. show up with a yellow cab, different things happen to you. <laughs> yeah, I bet. What year was it that you did this? I don't remember. I think it was 2010 or 2011. Yeah, right. Something like that. But then after that, I decided I wanted to keep on doing stuff like this. So I did this thing called Split, where I went up to random people on the street in Manhattan. And I was like, if you go anywhere in the world right now, where would you go? And this woman was like, I, would, I want to go to Berlin. So I just grabbed her and I took her to Berlin, like immediately. I just grabbed her passport and went to Berlin. You did that? Yeah. And, and just like filmed it. And again, it was like this obsession with what happens when you take a person and shatter any semblance of like structure and reality and how, just make them swim in the surreal. How did they cope? How did, let's take the Berlin lady. How did she cope? Uh, so her name is Sora, Sora Ann, and she's, I'm going to see her next week in Texas. I'm going to see her. She's, she's my homegirl. Um, she's amazing. So she's also a musician. And, you know, she was like, originally it was like, oh, I'm just going to go have this adventure. She's like, this is amazing. I'm going to do this. By the way, it took like a whole day to find somebody willing to just, go anywhere and yeah. playing with some random dude, you know, that they didn't know. I mean, like, there were women who were literally like, are you going to rape me? Are you going to kill me? 
And I was like, why wouldn't I just do that here? <laughs> like, <laughs> why would I want to take you to your favorite place in the world to kill you? Yeah. But Sora, you know, Sora was like, yeah, I'm down. Let's go. I'm doing it right now. So I grabbed Sora. We hit JFK. We go. We thought we were just going to have an adventure. It was like this transformational thing in her life. And it was, you know, originally the idea was like this was going to be this like, I thought it was going to be this like really fun thing where you, people had this like release. Um, but that's not what it was. It was really a thing where people, or at least she was like, what am I doing with my life? And so we get out there and like, you know, within 48 hours, I introduced her to my closest friends that were living in Berlin, you know, writers, musicians, uh, directors, you know, actors, like all, this whole community of artists that I know in Berlin. And she's like, I have to be making music. She's like, I have to go home and quit my job. And she's like, I need to go to yoga right now. You know, I have to go to an AA meeting right now. I was just like, what the hell is going on? Like, this is insanity. So all this happens. She comes home. She actually doesn't come home with me. She stayed in Berlin with my friends for an extra like week, or hmm. two weeks or something. Because she's like, I've got to figure out my life. Comes back, quits her job, becomes like full-time musician for a while. Um, ends up moving back. She ends up moving to Germany for a while. And then LA and, and Texas and God knows where else. Like she just moved around. But like she completely gave up her life. It's mm, incredible. It was, it was a wild thing. I mean, like it kind of proved the thesis to yeah. like some degree that like people need this, this weird shake. Um, but also it was not at all what I was, what I was expecting, which yeah. is cool for me. You're like Neo or Morpheus. No, you're probably more like Morpheus, I guess. A little, little, use that, that little, analogy. little, little, yeah, I was on the Morpheus step on that. Yeah. yeah. Thing. But I didn't know it. I didn't know that was what I was doing. Yeah. You know, until she was like crying in <laughs> Berlin. She's like, I've got to change. I was like, what is happening? Wow. But it was great. Yeah. So you grew up in Queens. I grew up originally yeah, in South Ozone. Right. 24th in London was, was my first home. And what'd your parents do? Oh man, my mom was a bookkeeper for a little bit. Then uh, she worked at JFK. She worked at the fragrance counter at JFK Airport for a while because we lived right by JFK. My dad was everything. My dad has done like everything. He was when we were living there. He was a computer programmer and worked in the World Trade Center and. Uh, that was about as fancy as he got. I mean, he's basically a math artist is what I would describe my father as. My father's a quant. He's obsessed with numbers. Super, super, super creative, abstract thinker. He's, a, he's, he's an artist and, and numbers are his medium. So, and you grew up Jewish as well? No. No? No, I don't think I grew up Jewish. I don't know what I grew up. I grew up neither this nor that. So... I went to, you know, Catholic school for, like, kindergarten. I think they kicked me out. And I went to, like, public school. Uh, then I moved and I went to, you know, a, I got a scholarship to a private Catholic high school. Thank God. Uh, that was great. Then I went to Jesuit college. But the whole time I grew up with my father, you know, who is kosher. <laughs> my <Yeah>. father's, <laughs> you know, my mom is Dominican, super Catholic. My dad's super, super Jewy. Right. Super kosher. Yeah. So I was like a little bit of both. You so were Jew-ish. I was Jew-ish. I was Jew-ish. But it's like, look, you're never, you're never Jewish enough to be a Jew when you're half Dominican. Mm. You're never Catholic enough to be Catholic when you're half Jewish. You're nothing. Yeah. And so did you feel like, did you feel displaced in any way or you just kind of weren't, weren't even really aware of it? 
No, I've, I've totally displaced my entire life, and which is where I prefer to be. Mm. It's sort of like in my own place. You <laughs> yeah. know, it's like I'm not part of anybody's thing. Like I'm not, like I don't give. I'm not owned by any thing. You know, I'm, I'm my own jam. Yeah. While you're at school, were you like a an artistic kid or a um, or scientist, science based kid, or always both? Yeah. Both. I mean, really, I just I just love everything. Like I've never, I've literally never encountered anything that I wholly hate, like anything. Like I've just, it's all really interesting to me. It's mm. all something that I want. So I was, I was a painter first. That was my first passion was painting, I would say. Um, and then, you know, I remember I read Lord of the Flies when I was 12. And the first page, do you remember this book? No, I haven't read it. I've really? seen the film. You never read the book? No, I never read the book. So that book made me want to become a writer. Just the first page. It was like the first time I saw somebody write something and I knew that it was actually intentional. You know, so he describes, you know, Golden describes this plane landing on this island and it leaves a scar on the island. Like it cuts through the trees and it leaves a scar. Not a cut, not a gash, but a scar. And I was like, oh my God, you know, this guy wants me to know in the most efficient way possible that as soon as this plane touches this unsoiled virgin island, it's tainted by humanity forever. And it'll never heal. It'll always have this scar. And it blew my mind. I was like, I didn't realize until that point in my life that you could be that intentional with language. And I was like, I want to master language. Like, I want to write like that. I want to have that efficiency of thought. And, uh, and then I got really obsessed with writing for a, for a long time. Um, and then I got obsessed with DJing. Uh, and then I, I got obsessed with uh, guitars and I, I got obsessed with film and videos and screenplays and I'm just, I, I get obsessed with a lot of things. I'm super obsessive. Mm. Your parents, did they try and kind of angle you or guide you towards something or they just kind of they let had you no do choice. your thing? They really had no choice. Right. Like they couldn't really <laughs> contain, you know, whatever was happening. Yeah. I mean, they, I mean, like, the my the most I think it was, like, you know, I told my father, I was like, you know what, I think I'm going to start writing. And he's like, you don't want to write. You want to have written. And I was like, is he right? Like, that, that jammed me up for, like, probably five years. I was like, hmm. You want the end goal. You don't want the process, though. Which is actually, I found out, total bullshit. It's probably the exact opposite. I just really like writing. <laughs> Like, yeah. I don't care what I write. <laughs> like, I'll write an email, and you'll be like, that is a great-ass email. <laughs> I've done that. I read it over and over again. Oh, yeah, I'm man. Like, you're like, this man, is... I nailed this one. Fucking killed it. You're yeah. like, look how efficient it is. And then you, you look at, like, the syntax. I'm like, it's like a like a bolus of thought, of, like, condensed mm. logic. I'm like, oh, I love this. I've sent my emails to the Louvre, hoping that they'll display them, but they haven't quite got to that part. They'll of get the, there. Yeah. They'll get there. Eventually. All of our tweets used to be saved at the Congressional Library. Really? Yeah. The U.S. Right. Library of Congress used to save <laughs> all of our tweets for posterity's sake. So, you know, all of that writing is there forever, sadly. Right. That is very unfortunate. Super unfortunate. Taking up a lot of space. A lot. Well, they've stopped because it's too much space now. Yeah. Yeah. So coming out of high school um, and going, did you go to college? I did. I did. I started off at College of the Holy Cross. Uh, I think that they, they didn't quite kick me out. They didn't have the nerve. <laughs> like they, they suggested strongly that I not return, you know, um, which was good advice actually. Um, and I, I, I thought about that suggestion and I, I did not return. 
I, I ended up transferring to Fordham in the Bronx, which is a much better place for a Dominican. Yeah. <laughs> what, were you, what were you studying there? Finance. Cool. Which I love, actually. Like, I actually enjoyed it. Like I told you, I mean, I'm a weird guy. Like, I found something interesting in just about everything. Yeah. But I really like numbers. I love the elegance of uh, the time value of money. Like there's, there's like a simple elegance to the formula, the summation of, you know, one over one plus I to the nth power. Like that formula in all of its different, you know, uh, massaged combinations is like, that's it. That's just, that's like the holy grail of like money. Like that's it. It's just that simple. What does that mean? I have no idea what that means. It means that as uh, an interest rate stays uh, fixed over n period of time, um, that the value of that money deteriorates. Um, and so it really becomes a question of what your, your discount rate is or, or what value you apply to money, which is also not objective. It's, it, it actually is a subjective thing. You can peg it against things, but there's an actual art to finance, to determining value. You know, what is the value of time and what is the value of money? That is fundamentally the question of finance. Um, and it's not black and white. You would think it is, but it isn't. Mm. And so when you make deals, there's a great deal of creativity that can be exerted if you understand, if you really, really, really understand those variables. It's not different than, you know, using red or green or, you know, playing a major or a minor chord or, you know, using a, a, a telescopic lens and, and pushing in or, or, you know, pulling out. It, it has the same effect um, if you understand the material. Right. So why was it that you decided finance was where you were going to start channeling your, your energy at that point in your life? Um, actually, it was a professor at Holy Cross who told me to do it, which was, uh, so I was in this sociology class. I, it was actually a liberation theology class. And my professor was this woman. She pulled me aside and she was like, listen, all people do in this field is study shit that they already know and then whine about it. It's <laughs> pathetic. She's like, just go like explore your Jewish side, get into business, make money and figure out like what you want to do from the outside, understanding all the things that you would want to change. She's like, you have no place in this. Like, this is not for you. And, she's, and she, she basically was like, look, she went through every civil rights activist, every single one of my heroes in life. And she was like, all of these people had no fundamental understanding of economics. They really didn't. They had a very good idea of what they thought an equitable society looked like, but they couldn't actually express it in, in ones and zeros and, in, in, you know, actual X's and O's structurally. And I thought that was, I mean, like, that's probably, that was a really profound moment in my life. I was like, fuck, I should actually learn business. Like, I should actually study business. And I thought I was doing it because I would, you know, I just wanted to understand it and use it as a tool, as a lever, but I ended up loving it. I thought it was great. And so like, it was just another one of those like weird, it's always this and that with me, you know? And that was one of those this and that moments, you know? I was like, I'm gonna do both. When did you then sort of bring things full circle to come back to your more artistic side and start kind of integrating that? Well, so, okay, so I, I, I start doing these deals and uh, I'm in this like super white and Jewish corporate world in midtown manhattan in a suit like every day of my life yeah. or literally this guy was teaching me this guy literally pulled me aside and taught me how white people shake hands like you keep your elbow tucked in 
you shoot your hand out so that you know you turn your hand slightly so that like it was a whole thing. Right. He's showing me the mechanics of how you shake somebody's hand. I'm like, is this guy serious? Is this fucking happening right now? Like, is it like a power move? Is that yeah, what, I was like, what, what, like what is this? And then people, you know, are telling me where to get my shoes and like how to do my hair. It's like they were so pretty soon they're trying to like assimilate you into this like corporate culture, you yeah. know, and, and like wean you to be, you know, this homogenous homosexual hired bot basically. And I was kind of going along with it for a while, and I was like, I couldn't anymore. And like, I had to disassociate myself. So I basically created a fictitious character that I would reference, which was like the ideal person to work in this environment, mm. which is a 55-year-old Jewish guy, more or less, right, who lives in Westchester. I was like, that's what they want. And so like, I could just be that guy nine to five, and then I was like, I need to do stuff outside of that. So I started doing these art shows. I started going to landlords and getting a bunch of like retail spaces donated to me. And I put like millions of dollars worth of art in like a retail space. And I would just throw a party. <laughs> so I had to throw a party for like a week or two weeks and like have an art show. And then people would donate champagne. We wouldn't even drink it. We'd have like champagne fights, like just popping corks <laughs> in the middle of like 10,000 square feet, like shooting champagne at each other, you know, and surrounded by like $2 million worth of art. It was just fun as hell. Um, and then like, you know, I started painting more and I started writing more and eventually I was like, I just have to fuse everything together. It was just too painful to live in two worlds. Yeah. And so where we are right now is this amazing warehouse space in Queens that you've established, uh, I guess you were saying about six, five, six months ago as this kind of, well, I'm not even, how, how would you describe the space? This space is a unbelievable 20,000 square foot, sprawling, 30 foot ceiling art factory that is in its nascent stages. Like we're just sort of putting together the machinery to create nonstop art here. Um, and it's basically the culmination of everything I've ever wanted to do in my life in one place. You know, it, it causes me to write, shoot film, shoot photographs, paint, you know, make music, make noise, like everything I ever wanted to do inside of <laughs> a very well-financed, large piece of real estate. It's basically the culmination of all my life efforts, I think. Yeah. What do you think, you know, discussing before uh, off, off mic about this idea of uh, social media for artists as this kind of fiat um, or currency, you know, likes and yeah. uh, shares and views and all that sort of, you know, streams and whatever. And this notion of, uh, I think it's a, a fairly modern idea of the artist as an entrepreneur as well as a creator having been taken sort of too far and being disempowering to the artists. I think it's the worst. I think it, causing artists to be publishers and to be writers and to be marketers and publicists and everything else in the world on social media in exchange for the fiat currency of likes and views and streams is the most nefarious idea in, I, I know of in modernity. It, it is unbelievable. I can't believe that people do this. I took my kids to Chuck E. Cheese. Have you ever been to Chuck E. Cheese? No, I've not. You've missed nothing. It is <laughs> the absolute worst experience of your life. So you, you go into a place that is terrible, yeah. filled with terrible kids that are just like consuming like vast quantities of sugar 
and soda and like making noise and playing machines, but they make you trade your dollars when you come in for their Chuck E. Cheese currency. And the reason is obviously like once you give someone a dollar and they give you four or whatever back, coupons or raffles or whatever the case may be, you no longer equate this new currency to its derivative currency, which is your dollar. And so you spend it more wantonly um, because you lose track. I mean, that's the idea. And it works. And that's exactly what YouTube and Facebook and all of these companies have done. They've convinced people that likes and views are a currency that is equal in value in some way to your dollars or your time. And it's not. But as long as you keep on going to Chuck E. Cheese and giving them your dollars, they'll keep on giving you your little coupons and taking all of your money and you leave with nothing. You leave with a sugar high that crashes and nothing of value. And that's what these people have done. It. And it's completely nefarious because they know precisely what they're doing. And artists are going for it and they're getting screwed. They're getting screwed every single day. So how do you propose to cha change that with this space? Well, the idea is to, first of all, break out of that currency. So, you know, we are to likes and streams what cryptocurrency is to dollars. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. we're a radical parallel currency that pays no value to this bullshit derivative fiat currency that, that has been imposed on us. So that's the first thing. We work with the different currency. And it's, it's an easy thing to imagine. You know, like I always say it's like if you go to Madison Square Garden and you get on a microphone and you say, you know, who here wants $100, right? Every single hand will go up. Not one person will be like, nah, I don't want $100. But if you went in there and said, who wants sardines on a peanut butter sandwich? You know, you wouldn't get the same response. You know, but really, you're saying the same thing. It's like, so why are people so convinced that dollars are their currency, the same way likes and streams are their currency? They've just been conditioned to believe this. So we gotta just break that paradigm. So the first thing I wanna do is break that paradigm. And that requires almost radical communism, which is what we have here. You know, the guys who, who, who play here, the artists who come in here, they just bring all of their talent and nothing but their talent, and they collaborate in the interests of something synergistic and beautiful. That's it. Like, that's their whole expectation. I capture that, repackage that, find media and brands to subsidize that, and then redistribute that value back, which is greater than the individual inputs of each person, back to these people. That's the idea. Which is the inverse of how companies work, right? The way a company works is, you go there, you say, you know, I'm Mr. Marks and I have a podcast. And they say, well, that's worth a dollar to us. Right, So in order for us to make money off of you, we have to pay you 50 cents so we can mark up that labor and still get 20 cents for ourselves. And that's how businesses work, period. You accept a lower value for your own services than what they're worth in the hopes that someone else knows what to do with it. But historically, people have not known what to do with it. So the idea is, can we take that value and say, well, your individual value as a podcast is a dollar, but in this factory that we're making here, we can turn that into $5 and redistribute that back to your three partners and give each of you more than what you're worth, theoretically. That's the idea, that's the goal. How do you create that kind of value and redistribute it? Um, and again, it's the opposite of 
how other businesses fundamentally operate. They're looking to discount you to mark you up. I'm looking to increase your output to create greater value and redistribute larger proceeds. I mean, it makes complete sense in a, from, I guess, from an artist's point of view that, I mean, that's, you know, for, for me, that's, that's what I, that's what I want to do. I just want to create and I want to um, have the kind of means and the platforms to be able to put what I create out into the world. But at the same time, it does feel as though there's that need to kind of, uh, you know, every time I've been asked to, kind of, to, to value myself, like how much would your rate be for this or that? There's always that kind of like, oh, well, I don't want to go too high. If, you know, you don't, you don't kind of want to sell yourself because then there's the fear of, not getting the job or not getting the gig or whatever. So um, that relationship that you just described is necessarily disproportionate because you as the individual are approaching an organization and saying, you know, I want to provide this service for you. And they're saying, how much? Um, now, you have not many corporations to go to to provide this service, and they have very many people willing to give you this service. So they put you at a negotiating disadvantage from the onset, right? So I wanna reverse that. So the demander comes from this idea that I believe economies are not supply and demand, they're demand and supply. And so I think that the corporations ought to be making these offers. They need to be valuing these people based upon what they see in them. And so that you, as somebody who provides this service, can look to them and say, you're incorrect. You've misvalued me. <laughs> and you have that power when the, when the negotiation is turned on its head, um, where it rightfully belongs, right? Because they can fire you at any given point, but you can't fire the corporation. You can't fire Disney. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, and so I want to switch markets up so that they make sense for modernity because the way markets work we always hear about supply and demand and that's a Keynes era like construct it's like back when it took like disproportionate amounts of money to create a factory to create a good supply was really meaningful because you couldn't just like make a tv well now we all have a tv in our hands and you know there's people who turn a raspberry pi into a cell phone and making things supply is not as meaningful anymore but demand is you you can make a billion iPhones tomorrow but you won't sell a billion which is why you don't make them so really demand is driving the transaction so how do you prioritize demand in a way that creates fairness and equity that's what this whole endeavor has been about for me mm -hmm. um, it's thinking about the arts as a market from the very beginning and you know it's uh it's been four or five years of just like grinding on this thing and thinking I was crazy and I don't know at this point i'm I'm starting to believe my own bullshit i think i <laughs> I, I think I could do something I mean I've spent uh forty minutes with you now, and I believe it good i'm 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 on board good how much how much do I have <laughs> no how much are you worth <laughs> you're not supposed to answer you're not supposed right. to answer. <laughs> uh i you have to speak to my people. <laughs> I'm your people. Yeah. So speak to yourself. <laughs> I will. I I'll, do all the time. I'll be here. You let me know what I'm worth. I will. All right. Priceless. Pri That's right. Priceless. The, so, Marks, the Marks family 
It's priceless around here. <laughs> the Marx Brothers. Yeah. Well, you've got one of them. I do. Yeah. And he used to. Do I have the best one? I mean, that's a subjective point of view. If you asked either of our parents, they'd say no. But, you know. I've, you know what? <laughs> I've heard that from both of your parents. <laughs> yeah. I guess to, you know, kind of bring this conversation full circle, what for you, how, you know, a lot of the conversations that I have on this show kind of border into a place where we started talking about success and mm. touching success and what that can mean and, and, and uh, how would you, you know, how would you define this endeavor as having been a success? And I guess if you could even go one step further in your life and career, if this is a success, how would you kind of view that as having been a success? I, sp I spent a really, 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 really long time thinking about how to define success when I was like very young. Uh, and in my early 20s, I came upon what I think is at least my definition for success. And I, actually, I shared it with your brother too. I've shared it with most people because I, I really did put a lot of thought into this. And I think that success is the intersection of opportunities and resources. You know, you can graph it and where those two lines meet, that is success. And so, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, some, some kid from the projects with, you know, no family and no money and no one to guide you in life, success might be not dying. It might be getting out of the projects, you know, it might be, you know, if you're, if you're an addict, it might be getting, going another day without, you know, a drug, that's success, you know? And if you are the son of an enormously affluent uh, real estate developer from Brooklyn, um, success is doing absolutely nothing in your life and becoming president of the United States. <laughs> you know, so it's really, it's really conditioned upon like, what are your resources and what are your opportunities? Now you can make opportunities, but you know, most resources are not things that you can readily just make. And that's a part of success that, you know, is completely absent from the conversation in America. You know, like Donald Trump is a self-made man, is the conversation, which I find to be like the most unbelievable insult in the world. You know, that I've never met a self-made person, and yet the son of a multi-multi-millionaire is a, is a self-made man in his own eyes. And, and sells he just peddles that bullshit all day long and people buy it. It infuriates me. And so the idea that he's necessarily success because he's wealthy is a bullshit idea. That's a bullshit premise that I reject. And it's important to reject that premise. Because if, if that premise is true, you know, maybe my father's not a successful father, you know, because he, didn't, he couldn't give me money. But if that premise is false, then, you know, there's value elsewhere. And then you can see how things can be equitable. You can see how we can all be successful. Uh, when you reject that premise, and he gave you the resources, probably I'm I'm making he gave an assumption me his time. here. But he gave you his time, and he gave you the ability to kind of maybe understand numbers in a way that other people wouldn't. To kind of that maybe helped you through this. You I've know, never, the finance. I have. I actually never. I never actually thought about my father as sort of like the progenitor of my interest in numbers. Amazingly, until right this second, that's possible. But my father also. My, I just would just go for a walk with my dad. Mm. I would just walk around Queens and just bullshit. Like he would take me up. We'd, we'd park in Washington Heights sometimes and walk from, walk from uh, 181st Street down to the World Trade Center and back. And I was like five or six years old. We'd just walk and just bullshit all day. 
Just bullshit and bullshit and bullshit. Just talk about things. That's the only thing I ever did with my dad. And it's all I ever do with them. Like, we still, all we do is bullshit. So I had the ability to parse ideas and think about things differently. And I had an audience, a receptive audience, to bounce ideas back and forth on. And we still do it. You know, like, we had sort of like a, a writing religion for the past, I don't know, 25 years or so, where... You know, we, we write on economics and politics back and forth to each other almost daily. And uh, we write about tr- trade certificates and write about anything. It's just it's this thing that just evolved. And for me, it's like, you know, if my dad was Fred Trump, I don't think he would have had the time to do that. I like the idea that, that you know, where um, opportunity meets resources. It's a very, it's, it's a really great way to frame it, I think. I think so. I mean, I'm proud of it. It took me a really, really long time. It's not, it's not some like profoundly difficult concept. Yeah. But it took me a very long time to really think about, you know, what that means. And it's like uh, someone once said to me that luck is, you know, where opportunity meets preparation. So it's kind of, I guess, you know, in a similar line of thinking, it's like, what are the tools that you have at your disposal and how hard can you work to be in the right place at the right time? That's right. Well, thank you so much for uh, for chatting to me, John. I really appreciate your insights and, and your thoughts. And um, Demanda is the name of the, uh, I'm not sure what to call it. I don't know what it is. Um, I, we're, we're on some New Jack Media shit. I don't know what it is. We're, we're doing, this is a concert venue. It is a uh, working recording studio. It is a hang. It is a really great hang yeah it's a it's a really great artist hang um we make media so if any artists from australia who might be listening to this or i guess anywhere in the world because podcasts are universal where might they be able to um find find you they can email me they can email you john j-o-h-n at demander that's without any vowels no we couldn't afford them yeah we spent, we had, <laughs> you spent all the money we on spent the all of on this building yeah <laughs> John, I end all of my conversations with the same question, and your answer is not allowed to be driving from uh, New York to LA with a cab driver. The question is, what makes you silly? Oh, uh, uh, idealism. <laughs> yeah, I'm, it's so fucking stupid. It's like I it, it just I cannot accept anything for what it is. You just have to shatter all the all the statues and. All the preconceived ideas. I mean, if they're silly, you know. Yeah. You know that that idea of attacking silliness is a silly idea. Right. You know, counterpunching irrationality is irrational, and yet I cannot help myself from getting into a fight with irrationality all the time. It's, it's stupid. Right. And I just do it professionally. Do you consider yourself a contrarian? Uh, I I don't even know how to answer that. Like, I, it's because like. Because if I did, then I wouldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know that I want to be. I, I know that I always end up, I'm on the other side of the trade more often than not. Right. That's 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 for sure. Yeah. A lot of hopping around. A lot of hopping around. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. <laughs>